What if everything you're searching for is already inside of you? Hi, I'm Cassandra Goodman, and I believe that true power comes from staying connected to who we really are at our core. This is a podcast about what it means to stay true to ourselves and why authentic leadership is such tricky business. You'll hear inspiring real-life stories from big-hearted leaders. I hope these stories help you to remember that true power comes from within. All right, well, so let me start, Stuart, by firstly saying thank you. Thank you for spending some of your precious Sunday afternoon with me to have this conversation about what it means to stay true to ourselves and this idea that true power comes from within. Um, so I've prepared a few words to introduce you, which is which you know felt like a bit of a challenge because there's so much amazing things that you've done in your lifetime and continue to do. And so I just want to say thank you because Stuart, you've been a mentor and a guide for me for the last five years. We met. Hey, you you do quite well on your own, Cassandra. <laughs> <laughs> well, your your very warm and generous words of support over the years have really meant a lot to me in terms of my confidence to keep going and my belief that my message is a message that's worth putting out in the world. So. We met um, when you came to Australia for the Stanford D School Intensive back in 2018. That's when we first met. Um, and we were lucky to spend some more time together in Australia when you came out for a subsequent trip a few years later. Um, and you know, attending that Stanford D School from Play to Innovation experience with you and Stuart, um, um, Brendan from IDEO was, you know, an incredible learning experience for me. Uh, you were kind enough to write a testimonial for my first book, Self Fidelity, which is now proudly on the back cover, the key Way to go. testimonial <laughs> for my first book. And you've been really generous in reading my second book and providing some, some encouraging feedback on that too. So I wanted to say thank you. Uh, and so, Stuart, you live in California in the US. You are the founder of the National Institute for Play and the author of the fabulous book, Play, How It Shapes the Brain, Opens the Imagination and Invigorates the Soul. I just love that, that title. So you have dedicated much of your career to the study of human play, what it is, how it affects our health and the devastating consequences of play when it's suppressed. Your early scholarly research on violence and 35 years of clinical practice, independent scholarship and rich relations with play scholars have convinced you that we are built to play and built by play. So anything I've missed there in terms of introducing you, Stuart, and the amazing work that you're doing in the world? Well, thank you so much. That's uh, I'm honored to have, have that resume out there. Thank you. Yeah, it's 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 very very impressive work. Uh, so, Stuart, I've I've explained that uh, this is really a candid conversation. You know, this is only my third conversation on the podcast, and so um, I really created this podcast to have honest conversations about what it means to stay true to who we are and some of the ways we can kind of get ourselves off course. And so the first question I wanted to invite you to answer is if you can recall a moment in your life when you were not being true to yourself. 
there are, as a long life that I've enjoyed, there are a number of times, of course, where that occurs. But uh, going back early, early, uh, I was very enchanted as a young boy playing a small E flat clarinet. And my parents were wise enough to have me uh, being tutored by a gifted clarinetist by the name of Jerome Stoll, who was the first clarinetist of the Chicago Symphony. And we had a lot of fun together. He, in particular, uh, wanted me to give a recital with him at a place called Kimball Hall in Chicago, where I grew up. And so wearing a little tuxedo, uh, Jerome Stoll and I played syncopated rhythms for a good-sized audience when I was about eight years old. And I remember really enjoying it and dancing to the music and feeling enchanted by the music. And a group of my uh, elementary school uh, friends were invited to the recital, and I thought they enjoyed it. And on Monday after the weekend recital, when I showed up in class, uh, there they were with little sticks and making fun of me because I had danced and weaved and played to the music with this wonderful musician. And I was shamed and felt uh, really uh, humiliated by this peer kind of making fun of me. And so uh, I lost interest at that time in what I think was a natural gift to which I should have been true, which was music. Mm. And so uh, my parents were not pushy and they didn't uh, push me to play uh, more clarinet and take more clarinet lessons. I think I faded over the course of about six months and then just didn't practice and that was the end of that so that's one instance where i ceased being true to something that i loved mm, can i ask a question there Stuart? because you know I've, I've got two young boys and that's that image of you as an eight-year-old boy being um humiliated like that is is really heartbreaking and so i'm probably asking this question as a mom of two boys who also get this schoolyard bullying uh, or, you know, unfortunate um, experiences. You know, when you look back at that time, do you, that, do you wish that your parents had somehow pushed you to stay with that and nurture that gift? Like, what do you, do you look back at that experience and see how perhaps it could have been handled differently by yourself or those around you? I mean, you were only eight, but I'm, I'm intrigued by that perspective. You know, I've, I have four adult kids and I think, there would have been a way to, uh, for them to continue to get past the humiliation of my peers and to continue with my love for music. Now, I have to say that I, st that I stayed very interested in singing and choir music and church music and still deeply enjoy, you know, last week I went to a concert of Mozart's Requiem at a local mission and was totally moved. So the music has stayed with me, but my participation is very different than that of my older brother who stayed with the clarinet. And as I have mentioned to you before, 
tonight he's aged 93 and in Southern California and playing in a band concert. So he's kept, and he says to me in his retirement years, the clarinet has been a source of nourishment and joy for him. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think he stayed with the musical interests that uh, because of my need for peer uh, belonging, I shunted and mm. stopped, which was uh, a source of not being true to myself. Yeah, and it's a, a kind of false belonging too, because you had to betray this this part of you in order to belong. That's so interesting, isn't it? Um, how these experiences shape us. Thank oh, you. Sure. Yeah. Um, and so I interrupted you then, Stuart. Were you going to share another experience perhaps in your life where you, where you also feel like you, you weren't? Well, there's, you brought to mind, uh, I was very busy as a medical doctor and medical practitioner and had a sabbatical time that was sponsored by the hospital that I was working for. And during that time, I read four books by the mythic scholar, Joseph Campbell. And I was enchanted by them. They meant a lot to me. They, he was describing the family of humanity and, and its search for religious certainty. And I didn't know if he was alive or dead, but I subsequently got to know him and organized a film company to make a film called The Hero's Journey, The World of Joseph Campbell and 13 PBS programs, which uh, were part of a true calling to do something that meant a lot to me. So although I was still actively practicing medicine during the time I organized those films, they became, in my relationship with him, he was alive and well and became, of course, world more world prominent not through some of the stuff I did and some other uh, people like Bill Moyers who put him on uh, PBS. So it was, uh, that was a very enriching experience, but that was a moment of being true to something that meant a lot to me that was really sort of off the beaten path. Mm, I love that because a lot of people who listen to the podcast are, you know, in professional roles um, and perhaps sometimes we think we have to give it all away to, to follow our calling. But I love that ex example you've shared where we can blend this deep, purposeful work that's that's true to our calling and mm -hmm. I'm, I'm sure medicine is also uh very deeply satisfying and true to your calling as well but I love the blend of those things yeah oh, that's you. beautiful and well, thanks, you know, for remind thanks for asking these questions that gave me some reminders I haven't thought about for a while oh we yeah all, you're very we all should kind of uh go within and, and think about these things these are good questions Thanks, Stuart. And I completely agree. I think so many leaders particularly are so busy. You know, I, I meet lots and lots of leaders who have no time for reflection. And certainly I agree in my own work with my own coaches and therapists, um, this opportunity to go back and make sense of our experiences, particularly our childhood experiences that continue to echo throughout our years. And often it's this sense-making that just brings a new awareness and, and more, more empowerment and more choice actually through this simple act of making sense of what happened to us through, through our adult uh, eyes and mm. asking the question, you know, what are the lingering effects of these experiences and 
um, do I have more choice and more freedom here and in, in, in who I'm being? Yeah, that's great. Um, and I, I picked up a couple of times you've used this beautiful word enchantment. And that's not a word you hear very often, but you've used it a couple of times. And I just love this word enchantment. Um, and I'm wondering if you can talk to, you know, what does it mean for you to, to feel enchanted? Because that feels like a really important aspect of who, of who you are. Your essence is a man who can become enchanted by the music, by the play. Um, yeah, what does enchantment mean to you? Well, gosh, you know, there, there are many avenues, at least for me, to enjoy a sense of enchantment. And the first thing that comes to mind, I don't know exactly why, is I live near the Pacific Ocean and the coast is beautiful. The uh, Carmel itself and Pebble Beach have some lovely beaches. Well, uh, last week I took a walk with a doggy on the beach at low tide and, at, and there was a beautiful surf coming in and I thought, oh, this is gorgeous. That was almost enchanting, but what was really enchanting was a little girl standing on the edge of the surf as the water came in with each wave. And every time the surf would hit her feet, she'd just jump up and down and up and down and up and down and squeal. And that to me was, you know, God in action or something. It was it was enchantment. So that was that's the first. I love that of, of something that was close by and recent. Mm, and you've got to be paying attention, don't you, to notice those those moments of enchantment. My kids are also very good at bringing me back into the moment when I'm, you know, in the future, in the past, in my head. Right. Children have this beautiful way of being in the moment and and sucking all the juice <laughs> out of the moment. I love that. I I relate to that with my own boys. Mm. Um, so. Maybe my next question, Stuart, is um, if you're willing to share a little bit about who, who you feel like you are at your core. You know, you've taught me a lot about our innate need for play and that our need for play is as essential to us as humans as our need for water, food and shelter, right? It's innate, something that many leaders in business have kind of lost sight of. So I know that at your core, you're a playful being and you've taught me at my core, I am a playful being, but what else, how else might you describe who you are at your core? Like who are you being when you're being most yourself? Well, that's, that's a highly personal, very, very penetrating question. And I think the going to medical school, uh, I became a kind of a hidden player because the ethic that was associated with being a medical student was the hardest working, tired medical student is the best one and you're the most dedicated. So I would uh, oftentimes run, I, it was in Houston where I went to medical school, Houston, Texas. I would often run at night with a squirt gun and a flashlight because there were lots of junkyard dogs in the neighborhood I lived and if they, uh, got wind of you at night, they they might be a bit tough. So you, an ammonia-laden squirt gun and a flashlight, and that took care of the dogs. But so there was a, a playful kind of uh, inner sense that I kept alive during medical school, not really thinking much at that time, oh, I got to play, that's really important, because the the 
experience I had with the mass murder of Charles Whitman in the Texas Tower in 1966 and the very systematic study of his life and death led me to an understanding in a kind of a systematic way of the academic component that here's a life without play. Mm. It can be without empathy. It can be uh, appear normal and yet the vengeance and anger and, and humiliation and rage that uh, otherwise would have been dissipated with a playful experience or many of them was systematically suppressed in this young man's life for his whole life. Well, that's what kind of sensitized me after professional training in medicine and psychiatry to look more systematically at play itself. Uh, I was fortunate enough to grow up in a playful family. My father was, was very playful, a sportsman, and, and so there was no question that uh, play was considered important without saying so. We just did it. And uh, the times were such that living in a neighborhood in the south side of Chicago, you just, you know, when you got school was out, there was no homework. You just messed around with your buddies and uh, rode your bike across town if you needed to and showed up and played until supper time. So I had a grounding in the importance of play and then the professional experiences with the mass murder and the many, many years since then where there's been a systematic look at not only human play, but four years with the National Geographic studying animal play in the wild with the help of Jane Goodall. You know, then play has taken on a different kind of cast, which is why I think it's innate, instinctive, necessary, and, and should be thought of as a parallel to our need for sleep. Mm, I completely agree. Yeah, and so many leaders, I think, uh, can benefit from this message that, that you, you've dedicated so much of your life to sharing. So at your core, you're definitely a playful being as we all are and perhaps a man that that notices these opportunities for enchantment would that be true say that again what what about uh, enchantment? someone who, who's who's open to the possibility of enchantment in any moment that, that we can feel enchanted by a good book by music by a child in the moment uh, i think there's something really magical about being open to the possibility of enchantment with life it's 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 all around us it, it is difficult if you're impoverished, sick, mm. uh, abused, so on. So if your country's at war, I mean, there are many things mm. that are tragic that suppress that. But even in those circumstances, uh, seeing a young bird sing in spring in Ukraine still should raise one's spirits for the, the second that you hear the warbling of a, of a songbird in the springtime, even in war-torn Ukraine. Mm. So there are around us capacities for enchantment that I think exist. It, maybe it's stretching a little and I don't wanna be uh, without sensitivity to people who are war-torn, but the, uh, the innate human uh, spirit is open to enchantment and awe and the sacred and the joyful mm. uh, throughout our lifetime, even when uh, things are tough. Yeah, yeah, it's um, 
it's a beautiful invitation and for most of the listeners of course we we have we are in this privileged position where we live in a peaceful country we have access to work and safety and shelter and um often when I'm coaching people who've lost their way sometimes I'll suggest that we just come back to our senses you know that very old saying come back to our senses what can we see what can we feel what can we hear how do we re-engage with the world around us um, to reduce the quiet the mind because we've all got such busy busy minds and there's so much stress stress and pressure for so much of us Um, and so maybe my final question it, it was one of your peers who who explained that the opposite of play is not work actually the opposite of play is depression and so if there's anyone listening to this who thinks gosh I really feel like I've just lost touch with my innate play nature any words of advice that you might offer to people who feel like they've lost their way just to kind of rekindle um, their their uh, their awareness that that play is innate in them it's there in virtually all of us throughout our lifetimes. So, you know, when someone has sort of lost their play and let's say they're a contemporary person so that there would have been access that they would have had for baby pictures, for example, Mm -hmm. I will say to them, find uh, the earliest picture of yourself, maybe when you're three months, six months old, the earliest picture of yourself and take a look at it and tell me, who do you see? Who's there? Who's that little baby? Did that little baby smile at at your mother or your father or your caretaker? And when they smiled, didn't they have a sense of joyfulness when they were that little, little tiny infant? That's still you. That play is still there. Where is it? Find it. You must have had some access whether music or sports or body play or collecting or or singing or some kind of experience that kindled your play nature. Find it and then figure out how do I link myself now in this current life to that me that's always been there. Oh, I love that answer. And I, I remember now when we did the D school experience together, that was part of the homework to bring a photo. Right. And I've just remembered that I found a photo of myself that were, I was painting when I must've been about five or six and I had a big grin and I was holding up this very average painting, <laughs> proud as punch. And, I, and it really helped me to realize that um, as I've got older, I still occasionally paint, but there's this part of me that's so worried about the quality of the artwork. Is this picture... Is this painting hangworthy in the house sure. that I'd lost? I'd lost touch with just the joy of painting without any expectation of a certain quality of out output. So yeah, I remember that was a really moving experience for me, and I do love to play and muck about with with my children. We've got some very average canvases <laughs> hanging in our house. <laughs> so thank you. Uh, thank you so much, Stuart. You know, hey, it's I always a pleasure talking with you, Cassandra. It's really fun. And I hope the people that listen to this find their play. Me too. I think you've helped them very much to rekindle their innate play nature. I really recommend anyone listening grabs a copy of Stuart's book. It's an extraordinary book. 
um, check out the website, the National Institute of Play. I'll, I'll put a link. Um, thank you again, Stuart. I hope to have another conversation with you very no, soon. I look forward to it. Thank you. Thank you. By being true to our deepest selves, we liberate our highest potential and serve the greatest good. As the founder of the Center for Self-Fidelity, I am on a mission to help leaders feel more authentically empowered so we can co-create workspaces where people can thrive, perform, play and belong. Learn more at selffidelity.com.